Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy, featuring conversations with scholars and authors and ideas from diverse perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. Michael Cruz is my guest today. He's a senior staff writer at Politico, where he writes about presidential candidates and campaigns. He has been a journalist since his undergraduate years at Davidson College, where he and I were classmates, and he worked for the Tampa Bay Times before joining Politico in 2015. He has won a number of awards, including the National Press Foundation's Dirksen Award for Distinguished Reporting of Congress. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the supposedly post-truth world that we live in and what college students should know about the nature of journalism. So one point I thought we would start with is people say we live in a post-truth world. Do you feel like people care less about the truth than they used to? I do not. You know, people always have told stories to others and to themselves to try to make tidy sense of the inherent senselessness of existence, the inherent chaoticness of existence. That's a forever thing, and it will be a forever thing. What's different now, I think, is that these stories that aren't true spread so much more easily, uh, exponentially more easily with the interconnectivity of the internet. So whereas it used to be, you know, the guy wearing the tinfoil hat, so to speak, and the people around him, his neighbors would sort of uh, talk about him in hushed tones and keep him at arm's length. Now all of the tinfoil hats can get together and um, create entire universes um, over the internet and then not just over the internet as we've seen more and more. Um, And because of this, because of this just reality, the reality of the way information travels um, at this point, it is an entirely different scenario than I think it has been at any other point in, fair to say, sort of hyperbolic, but human history. (laughs) So because of this scenario, though, do you feel like it's easier for people who want to lie to use their lies to get ahead? Definitely. Just the machinery is there um, to make those lies seem less like lies. I think it's just human nature to listen to the volume of messages and the reach of messages and to assign some measure of value to those metrics. It's hard not to. It's hard to dismiss louder and louder uh, lies that are coming at with more and more frequency, right? Uh, Do you agree with that? I mean, it's just, it's just, it's harder to dismiss. You need to be in a position of some knowledge and and of some privilege to be able to sift through all that stuff and um, to the extent that it's even possible, neatly put what's real over here and keep it front and center and then what's not over here and keep it uh secondary you have to pay attention to it but you don't have to acknowledge you don't have to, you have to acknowledge it but you don't have to uh agree with it you don't have to uh give it increased um uh you don't have to shine light on it and if if you're in my position you don't have to that is not my job it is not my job to um you know p- play this this on the one hand and this this true thing on the one hand and this untrue thing on the other that is not 
helpful. That is not my job. Well, I agree that we tend to look at converging evidence as valid. So if you have four or five different sources or 10 or 20, and they all seem to be giving you the same message, it looks like you have more evidence, or it looks like you have converging evidence. So, um, And that can happen with social media if you're following the wrong accounts. Well, we all have to make choices and arm ourselves with knowledge to make make those choices, whether or not you're uh, a reporter <laughs> whose, whose literal job is that. But as citizens, we have to make choices. What sources of information are we going to value the most and use to make decisions on how to live and how to be um, a participant in the civic fabric? So if you were to teach a course to college students on today's news environment and social media, how would you prepare them to the extent that that's even possible? How would you prepare them for this world, which is quite different from the world that you and I were in when we were in college? Well, it's not quite what you asked, but the first thought is that it needs to start well before you're teaching college students. I mean, ideally, this is something that we incorporate into the curriculum in elementary school and in middle school and in high school, how to be, um, how to be not a consumer of news, but a citizen of your place. And I think that is a, a, a distinction that more and more gets lost. Have you seen middle schools do this? I have not, but I, I, I'm not, I'm not typically in middle schools here and there for certain stories, but I'm not, I don't, I don't know. I'm not an expert in uh, the, the, the curriculum of sort of what might at one point have been called civics. I just think this is a, this is a lifelong effort. It is not something while a college class, the kind of college class you're describing is useful and better than nothing better late than never. This is a, a discipline. This is an exercise. This is a series of exercises that needs to start much, much earlier. For, you, you referenced how it was different when we were growing up. We're similar age. Here's how I. Here's part of how I became not only a professional journalist, but a, a, more importantly, a, a citizen of democracy. In my house, my parents' house. The Boston Globe showed up and the New York Times showed up. Initially, and for quite some time, sports were my chief interest. I read the sports section, you know, word for word, uh, starting in elementary school. But over time, <laughs> uh, as I transitioned to, say, middle school, I couldn't help but see and be interested in other parts of the newspaper, the metro section, the front section, the editorials. And so the field of view broadens from, you know, did, this, did the Celtics or the Red Sox win last night to essentially where do I live and who, who, who is making decisions about um, the place that I live, the place that I live being, you know, the suburb of Boston, the Boston area, the United States of America, the world, just sort of an organic introduction to the time and place in which I was growing up. What is the equivalent of that now? Because that is the start of, I think, of, of the question you're asking about how to teach college kids to do this, right? So I guess it's a separate question. 
am I teaching, am I teaching college students how to be uh, engaged participants, engaged citizens, or am I teaching them how to be, uh, how to be a, a reporters? Or am I teaching them a little bit of both? Because, because there, there, is, there is overlap here, right? I mean, uh, to, to, be, to be a reporter is to be a citizen, first and foremost. To be a journalist is to be a human, first and foremost. Right. Well, let's say we just pin this down to the issue of fake news or news that's deliberately manufactured with no semblance of reality. How would you prepare? Um, well, maybe prepare is the wrong word. What sort of case study would you talk about of why there's a market for creating this and consuming this and how that developed? Or how you can just be aware that that market of information is now out there. So when we were growing up, AM radio, I mean, I didn't listen to AM radio much. I moved to the U.S. when I was 18, and we were in the same class at Davidson. But I grew up in India, and I moved to the U.S. at 18. So I listened to Rush Limbaugh secondhand because other people were listening to it. Mm. But I knew there was a degree of lying and fake news even on AM radio. But when you see stories on Facebook that really are packaged to look authoritative you need to be prepared for the fact that they might not be. So you're inside the journalism machine. From your perspective, how do you explain to students why it's easy to look at fake journalism and think of it as real journalism? Well, there's a market for it, partly because of what we discussed at the, at the, at the top of the episode, that, that, that you know, there's always a market for alternate, alternate realities. Now you can share it more easily and you can find kinship with others who are in the market for that or who find some solace or for some reason need to, need to, uh, need to look at that stuff rather than something more credible. I mean, it's interesting that the term fake news and the way it has changed over the last four years. I mean, initially in the 2016 election, fake news was just that. It was a very literal term fake news, news that is not real, news that was specifically sort of engineered by, you know, content farms uh, in Macedonia, I think is where it was. Um, but a variety of places, anybody could do it. And lots of people did do it to just throw it out there and sort of the more the more clicky and the more sensational and the more grabby a headline, the more it, the more it uh, is widely shared. And it is quickly, I mean, this is the way it worked in the 2016 election, quickly debunked by, you know, credible fact-checking outfits. But it doesn't matter totally because it's already out there and it will always, it will keep spreading to certain places in spite of those fact-checkers. That's what fake news meant until really the transition from the Obama presidency to the Trump presidency when Trump very quickly and cleverly in some respects co-opted that term and shifted it almost 180 to real news outlets, your fake news. It's become obviously an epithet. I mean, it's it's almost to the point of cliche at this point, but it has not, this, this tactic has not subsided and I don't see when it will or how it will. Um, But more specifically to your question, how, how to teach, how to teach impressionable, young, intelligent, uh, minds to distinguish between fake news and real news. And of course, this exists on a spectrum too. You know, there is, there is like the easily identifiable quote fake news to use that term the way it it initially existed. Um, and then there's a sort of the more sophisticated stuff, right? So, but you can start by sort of identifying what's what's credible 
what's what should be in a responsible citizen's news diet. I mean, I think that's how I'd attack it with college kids who may or may not still be confused about how to distinguish. You know, there's there's a there's a there's an infinity uh, number of newspapers and magazines and digital outlets that are responsible, credible, real. They don't get everything right all the time, but when they don't get something right, they they publish a correction. They strive for intellectual honesty um, and um, play a integral role in any functioning democracy. Right. So I don't really care which of those, which handful of those outlets, a up and coming citizen slash college student uh, is reading. I just care that they are because that is in itself makes you sort of immune to being duped to uh, less credible. They're not even outlets. It's just, it's just a creation, a a figment of a a substitute of a, of of a news article that, that is showing up on, you know, your uncle's Facebook page. So what would you say the most, um, if you were to name a few news outlets that you consider really trustworthy news outlets, uh, like really good gatekeepers, but ones that don't engage in false equivalents, what would you say? You know, I work for Politico. Let's let's start there. Politico, um, the, you know, the the, the major uh, newspapers that are papers of record and are robust and still resource rich even in the time of pandemic to, uh, to have reporters on the ground and, uh, you know, best in, best in class uh, journalists working on behalf of the citizenry, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, Los Angeles Times, um, wherever you live, uh, invest in your um, local newspaper or a, a, another local outlet. I live in the Charlotte area I subscribe to the Charlotte Observer. I support uh, an outlet called Charlotte Agenda, uh, which does great work uh, in and around Charlotte. I support the local NPR affiliate. I mean, all this is important for the health. As much as these places in many situations, most situations are ailing at this point, it becomes all the more important if you are serious about being a citizen in your place first, in your place uh, the place that you make your home in, it's important to the extent that you can financially, of course, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not, well, I wouldn't say it's cheap or expensive. It depends on what your, what your ability is. But if you can, to the extent that you can, I think it's very important to pay for your news close to where you sleep. Uh, that is like the step number one, <laughs> uh, to, 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 to being a responsible, um, news consumer which is to say a citizen, a citizen. There's the, exor- the exercise of citizenry, uh, reading. And I would say, I would add, read uh, your news. And I would say this to college kids, read your news, don't watch it. I mean, watch it fine, but read it first. Um, I think that's a different experience and a, a more substantive experience uh, because the news you watch is almost unavoidably more entertainment than news you read. Yeah, that point is one that I try to make to college students too. If I remember, sometimes I forget. I mean, sometimes I just take it for granted, but watching news on TV is generally not worthwhile and I don't even make it explicit. 
well, I find myself in conversations with people about cable news, you know, people who are, you know, smart, well-meaning, uh, <laughs> regular people who complain to me about the, 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 the conflict, the, the, the constant conflict evident on cable news and how they, they, they feel uh, like everything's so partisan on cable news. And I, I try to respond um, by saying that's, that, that, that is the point. That is the point. It's not, you're, it's, it's not that you're not getting any information necessarily. It's better than nothing. But if you don't want to live in this sort of hyper-partisan, conflict-driven, which is to say entertaining, because conflict is entertaining, conflict-driven news ecosystem, shift to a different, better ecosystem. If that's your deal and you like watching that, fine. It's the same reason you watch you know, a, a, a good docudrama on Netflix. But don't confuse these two ways of getting your news and understand what you're getting by watching cable news. Understand what its role is, what its mandate is. If it didn't do that, it wouldn't exist. Earlier this year, I interviewed James Poniewozik, the TV critic for the New York Times. And for people who are listening who didn't check out that episode, you might want to check out that episode or the book itself that talks about how, among other things, shows like Survivor and professional wrestling changed all of TV and made shows like The Apprentice possible. Which is what made, one might argue, I have mentioned, which is what made the Trump presidency possible. Um, yeah. You know, there is no one reason, but The Apprentice certainly uh, helped build a bridge. Right. The academic evidence supports that. People felt like they knew Donald Trump better because they had watched The Apprentice. That's part of James Poniewozik's argument, too. He's approaching it as a TV critic, not as an academic, but that is, in a way, how Donald Trump got into people's homes and sold them the fantasy of who he was. Well, to that level, and as a person in charge and capable of swift, infallible decisions, that is the character he played on The Apprentice, which reached however many millions of homes, dwindled over time and almost immediately, but still a drastically larger audience than he had even in the 80s when he was, you know, starting to become a bit of a pop culture phenomenon, but not in that way. The Apprentice pitched him as a certain type of character that appealed uh, to a certain portion of the population once he shifted more squarely toward electoral politics in 2015. So returning to journalism, how do you feel or... In what ways do you feel like journalism is more difficult now? Like, are there some stories that illustrate how in some ways it's more difficult now than it was 20 years ago? Logistically, it's more difficult. Uh, it's more difficult to be a reporter right now because it's more difficult to be a person right now. Specifically, I haven't been out on the road reporting since March 2nd when I went to the Trump rally in Charlotte. That's a long time, a highly unusual Part of my job at Politico is to be out and about around the country. I'm not on the road as much as some of our reporters, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, depending on what I'm working on, two to three times a month. It's more difficult to report when you can't meet people and have conversations face to face. And 
even shake hands, which creates or did create a certain, um, you know, sharedness, which is to say lay a groundwork for a productive conversation. Uh, and all of the best interviews are sort of first and foremost conversations between two people. So logistically, it's, it's more difficult. A little bit more broadly, um, psychologically and emotionally, it's, it's a, it's for years now, it's been a more difficult um, task to be a reporter just because, you know, you are dealing with in your inbox and in your Twitter mentions and even sometimes in person, um, a certain level of distrust or even vitriol and bile uh, directed at um, at you because you are a, a stand-in for, you know, the quote, the media. It's obviously gotten worse over the last uh, four years with the presidential election and with the, the current administration. But that is not, uh, that is not, it's not super difficult for at least me to, uh, you know, screen that kind of stuff um, and uh, dismiss it as, you know, um, sad, angry trolls who have, you know, uh, bones to pick. They're not coming at me personally, right? So that's not too difficult. I think what is harder to stomach uh, over the last, you know, handful of years, and and really, in some sense, the entirety of my career, <laughs> and I, you know, I've been doing this, I've never done anything else for work, I've never done anything else to pay my bills since we graduated uh, from Davidson. So, you know, 20, 20, 20 years. Um, and in the course of those 20 years, you know, this industry, it's been harder and harder to, to, to one, make a living as a reporter and, and, and two, uh, just keep a job. There are, there are just tons fewer of me uh, out there um, doing this kind of work. I've been, you know, some combination of uh, good and very, very fortunate to, to be able to keep doing this and um, doing it the way that I, the way that I do. But it's hard to see friends, colleagues, not be able to continue working in this industry that they loved and found valuable and worthwhile. Um, and it's hard, even in a bigger way, to see the consequences of literally that many fewer eye, sets of eyes and ears at city council meetings at, you know, community events, uh, making public records requests. I mean, that has very real consequences that we are seeing on a daily basis. I mean, you know, to, to, to try to wrap this around to the idea of, of truth, if uh, and an accepted truth and a shared sense of what's real and what's not, you know, the the terrain on which this can happen, the disintegration of accepted truth is made more fertile. The fewer reporters you have, uh, you know, the vacuum gets filled and it's not being filled by responsible reporters. It's being filled by, you know, uh, purveyors of, um, of useful, information weaponry, which is to say propaganda. So just in the broadest possible sense, it is um, just emotionally and psychologically dispiriting sometimes more than others to see this trend line not only continue, but in some ways accelerate over the last handful of years. 
So when you're interviewing people for stories, does it make that more difficult? Sometimes I, you know, recall certain conversations over the last few years. I, you know, I remember talking to a woman in a, in a bar in Wisconsin, um, having to just sort of pluck through the, I find myself in a position here and there, you know, having to like listen to somebody who clearly lives in a different information universe. I know I'm not, I'm not there to be sort of a real time fact checker and I don't want to get into an argument. That is not my role. My role is to hear out that person but I have found myself going, you know, here and there, going back to the hotel at night and having to Google and like figure out where is this, where is this stuff coming from? And, you know, again, I need to, I, I generally need to be like aware of what, what people like that woman in the bar in Wisconsin is talking about. I mean, do you recall what she was telling you? You know, some precursor to Obamagate, whatever that is. Okay. Um, you know, this was probably three, four years ago by now. Um just a, a a stew a stew of 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 conspiracy theories um you know over the last 10, 10 15 years in you know in um in the the political the arena of political informational warfare i mean i guess it it does all blur together at some point everything everything sort of always comes back to i don't know barack obama but um that that instance with, with with that woman that just popped into my head at that bar in Wisconsin, you know, more recently I was at a Trump rally in Minneapolis and and um, was working the line waiting to get into the rally that afternoon and found myself having a conversation with a woman who was um, very excited about um, Q about QAnon, and so I, I just asked her, you know, what what is what is that to you, and. That we're in the risk of oversimplifying, she basically said, "It's everything to me. It is. It's. 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 It's what's real, and it's. It's. It's my life." <laughs> and so you want to you want to listen to that person, but you sort of you you, you leave. And in, and in, by the way, in other ways, I, I we we have shared experience. We I, we talked about where she's from and her kids, and but you leave those interactions like that, thinking, "How are we gonna ever?" get back, if that's even a thing, get back to a place where that woman from Minnesota and somebody like me are having a conversation with some semblance of a shared reality. I mean, that, that is, that is a, that, I guess that is a question that leaves me pretty pessimistic on that front. Like, I don't know how you undo that. Um, I don't, I don't know that that's possible. Um, uh, so in that respect, it's made, it's made some conversations, I mean, some literal conversations I have with literal human beings in a variety of places around the country more difficult. And it, and it makes it, uh, it makes it more difficult, sorry, makes it more difficult for, um, um, I mean, just from a time standpoint, it takes time to hear somebody out. Um, and these are things that I feel like I need to understand, but they're also things that I'm not going to dwell on in the stories that I eventually write, if that makes any sense. So um, it's difficult sort of emotionally as a citizen, and it's difficult logistically um, because I am having to listen to conversations and then, uh, uh, you know, filter them, filter them uh, into whatever I end up writing uh, out of those places. 
And when you interview people in politics or political actors, whether they work for a politician or are politicians, do you feel like there have been instances where they've tried to deceive you in ways that make your job? I mean, obviously, they've they've never always told the truth. But today, are there ways in which they tried to deceive you that seem to make your job more difficult? Not really. I mean, most most elected officials or aspiring elected officials operate most operate within a, you know, within a more uh, accepted realm of information than the women I just described. They are better at shading. Uh, they are better at, um, you know, if they are being selectively truthful, which frankly we all do uh, in our various ways, um, but they're not so far off um, Typically, typically there, I mean, I suppose there are exceptions, but I mean, look, most, most, uh, most politicians that I'm writing about and that I'm dealing with, I think are, I don't know, for the most part, um, for the most part operating within the realm of accepted reality. I don't even, I, I don't even know. I mean, that sounds that sounds uh, that sounds ridiculous to to even have to say, but um, no, I, I I think you know my job at Politico is to first and foremost profile presidential candidates. When one of them becomes president, continue to write about him, as it turns out, and uh, and also um, you know profile other sort of interesting and um, illuminating uh, political notables, whether that's a member of Congress or or anybody else, and. You know, for the most part, I I feel like I have. They have intellectually honest conversations with me, and um, I appreciate that. And I'll close with this: there is an element of both siderism. I have an episode featuring Lara Schwartz on false equivalence and both siderism um, from about a year ago, or more like nine months ago, and it was specifically about that. Do you feel like as a journalist, some people put pressure on you to be quote unquote even handed and report both sides? So you touched on this earlier, but do you feel like there's some pressure to engage in that sort of false equivalence? I suppose, but pressure from whom? You know, pressure from, you know. Advertisers, leaders. No, not advertisers. I, I, I don't think I ever feel pressure from advertisers, even indirectly. I mean, advertisers help. Uh, pay the bills. Um, but that doesn't filter down and never has to somebody in my position. That's never been, the, that's never been a, a feeling of mine in two decades of being a reporter. You know, I suppose there's some pressure that you might, uh, some indirect pressure you might feel from, you know, people in your inbox or people in your Twitter mentions or, you know, people, uh, in comments, which I do not read, but, I mean, it's to me, it's part of the job to to be able to withstand that pressure, whatever that looks like, and whoever is coming from, and, and to not engage in what you're talking about, both satirisms or false equivalents. My job as a reporter, anybody's job as a reporter, is not necessarily to even be objective, whatever that means. It's to be fair. It's to try to, to the best of your ability, to try to identify what is real, what is what is what is true. And to using the preponderance of your reporting, you're talking, you're talking to 
all kinds of people who say all kinds of things. That is the obligation. That is the job. The job is not to give equal weight to all those voices. There is, there is an element of, of choice. It's not just an element of choice. It, the job demands that somebody who is in the position that I am in, the job demands that I make certain choices about what, who deserves to be heard. You know, who's making a, a verifiable uh, argument and who is not? And it's not an easy thing. It's not a black and white thing. It is something that I and many others in uh, this industry struggle with on a daily basis. But that's the job. But I guess to answer your question more specifically, I don't feel I don't feel undue pressure to give, you know, uh, 50% of the text of a piece I write to this person on this side of this thing and 50% to this other person on this other side of the thing. It's just not, it's just not, it's just not how, how it works. And it's not how it's ever worked. It's not how I've ever done it. Right. I mean, the reason I asked that is I read both the New York Times and the Washington Post and I feel like the Washington Post does better here, but sometimes the New York Times crafts a headline in a way that's both ciderist. And there's usually a chain of people on Twitter, I think, legitimately complaining about the way the headline was framed. And so I wonder if there is, I just wonder why that happens in the New York Times. Yeah, I mean, I'm hesitant to play media critic it's hard enough to do my job and to try to do it satisfactorily, let alone well. Um, it's just, it's hard. And particularly for, I think, headline writers who have less space um, uh, in which to work, right? Um, this is part of, this is part of the conversation that has always uh, existed and it will be ongoing. And it's, uh, it's a valid conversation. Um, but I think readers, too, need to acknowledge that how they see the, the body text of a story or the text of a headline is a function of where they sit as well. So the way you look at a headline is not the way that somebody obviously on the other end of the political spectrum with a totally different political ideology looks at that headline. So it's a, uh, it's, 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 I guess what I'm saying is just, it's not an, it's not an easy thing. It's not a simple thing. And it's, and it's, and it's a conversation It's a series of conversations that happens every single day and a series of decisions. Sometimes, uh, sometimes, uh, reporters, uh, make the exact right decision. Sometimes, you know, not just reporters, uh, journalists of all kinds. And sometimes, sometimes, uh, Sometimes they don't, I suppose, like everybody. Well, Michael, thanks for joining us on the show. It's been great having you. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate, uh, appreciate your questions and all these. And an opportunity to sort of uh, continue to um, grapple with these uh, difficult and sometimes um, distressing uh, ideas. Um, but, you know, if we don't do it, um, it's even worse. So let's keep doing it.
I mentioned a couple of other episodes during the show. If you're interested in listening to those, the episode with Lara Schwartz on both Ciderism is episode 65 from September 2019. And the episode with TV critic James Ponowazic is episode 77. And it's from January 2nd this year, 2020. You can follow Michael Cruz on Twitter at Michael Cruz. His last name is spelled K-R-U-S-E. And you can find his articles on Politico. If you have any comments about today's episode, you can contact me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org or tag me on Twitter at chrismartin76. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes because it helps other people find out about the show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook. This podcast is for informational purposes only and doesn't represent the views of Heterodox Academy.